podcast family, I have a super interesting and a little bizarre topic in this episode, but it actually is a real thing, okay? Now, let me set the stage here. Just because you may not have heard of something doesn't mean that it's not a real issue and that it doesn't exist. And if you don't understand what's going on, then you can actually misdiagnose a patient like my patient who we're going to highlight in this episode. Don't worry, no HIPAA issues here, no personal identifiers. Uh, But this patient did give her verbal consent to use her case presentation, of course, with no identifiable markers, all right? But I think this is super interesting because I actually just read about this Oh, I don't know what was it six months ago, and and I'd heard rumblings about this, and this is probably a real thing, or is it is it or is it not? Is this a form of somatization of anxiety? But the truth is, there is definitely data that this is its own uh, disease state with potential organic causes. I'm going to get into it. It's a little weird. And this poor patient, this 19-year-old who had been going through this for close to two years was just um, almost you know, disregarded or, or, or put aside as, oh, she's 19 uh, and she's being hypersexual. Whoa. We got to explain all of this. But let me just briefly tell you her case presentation. And then we're going to get into what PGAD is. P-G-A-D. That stands for Persistent Genital Arousal Disorder. And no, this has nothing to do with sexual desire. Super interesting. And yes, it is a real thing. In short, I had a patient come to me just last week who is 19, otherwise healthy, uh, no chronic issues. Her BMI is normal. She uses no illicit substances. And when she came into the room, um, you, you know, I just saw it in her face. I mean, she was almost a little sheepish, a little embarrassed. But I could tell, obviously, she was very frustrated. And let's stop there for a quick moment, guys. Isn't reading body language super, super helpful? I mean, it, it also works in reverse, right? So you have a patient who says, oh, my gosh, I'm in so much pain. It's 10 out of 10. But they're scrolling on Facebook uh, at the same time on their mobile device. Either they've got a weird pain tolerance or a weird way of expressing it, or it's really not 10 out of 10. So body language is is a huge part uh, of something that we need to interpret and understand, not just for good interpersonal communication, but also to really understand what a patient is going through. And on the flip side, if she says, oh, no, I'm doing fine, but she's hunched over in a fetal position, she's probably not. So this patient's body language just kind of said, I'm, I'm so frustrated. I don't, I don't know what to do. Um, at the same time, I'm kind of embarrassed. I got all that just as she walked by me going into the room. So I sat down and said, all right, so t- tell me what's going on. And immediately she started to cry. So, um, of course, my next thing was a chaperone. (laughs) Like, I don't know what's happening here. What what is happening? Can I get somebody else to come in? Uh, She accepted. And then she went on to say that she was a little concerned because about two years ago, she was on a a motorized bike and it kind of went under her and she kind of fell on her bottom uh, and she kind of hit her sacrum. And it, it was kind of sore. She didn't have any bruising. She didn't go in to get checked. You know, she didn't have any loss in motor function. Um, didn't hit her head and she didn't think anything of it, but she was convinced that that incident that fall on her, on her, um, uh, little motor scooter was responsible for the symptoms she was now having. So I said, okay, well, what, what symptoms are you having? 
And she said, uh, I, it feels so swollen and it's tingly. And, and, and it feels like, like sometimes when I used to have sex, because she didn't even have sex in about two years because this thing was such a bother. But, but it feels like, like, like I'm almost about to have an orgasm, but it has nothing to do with sex. And this is happening over the summer. This happened when I was with family. Uh, and I'm concerned now because I'm about to start uh, my my first year in college. And, and I'm concerned that this is going to get in the way because it was getting away when I was in high school. So, of course, the question I had was, well, did you ever get checked for this? And she said she'd never been able to tell anybody about it because she was so embarrassed. And she thought, quote, something was wrong with her. Now, as it ends up, she had finally talked to a family friend who was a physician. Now, here's what's odd. She thinks she was a pediatrician. She, has, she doesn't know what kind of physician she was. She was, I think she was, I think she was like a, a, a kid a doctor. I said, pediatrician? She was, I think so. So, okay. Uh, probably the first thing to do is figure out who you're talking to. But anyway, it's a family friend. Um, and, and this physician said, oh, uh, I, I think it's just, I think you're just being hypersexual. Wow, heartbreaking. Of course, that devastated her because that was not uh, what she suspected to hear at all and not what she was feeling. So after we get this brief history, then I mentioned to her, hey, have you ever heard of something called PGAD, persistent genital arousal disorder? And her face lit up. Now, she had never heard of it, but she was just so happy to possibly have a name attached to what she was feeling. And I said, look, this is a real thing. Actually, I just read about this several months ago. Even though I've heard about it for some time, there's much more data now. And I I believe you have this. And it's real. So in this episode, we're going to talk about this real condition that likely goes uh, undiagnosed, unrecognized, uh, or never brought to people's attention, to physicians' attentions or or healthcare providers' attention because of the shame uh, and misunderstanding of what is actually happening. This is real, and it is recognized uh, by the International Society for Sexual Health. We'll get into that in a minute. So let's get into PGAD in this episode. Medicine moves real fast. We're here to help us all keep up the pace. This is Clinical Pearls. So before we get into the content, if you all listened to our last episode, I did it at the hospital um, in between, you know, being called a triage and seeing patient care. We had finished rounds, so we knocked one out. And so I send that to my team and Matt, who's one of our one of our audio guys, said, man, please stop doing this thing on the portable mic because it picks up a lot of background ambient sound and it's just a pain to try to fix that. And so what do I do? Well, so, of course, now it's Tuesday, August the 15th, and I'm recording this on my portable mic because I'm in my academic office this morning. I had a patient who scheduled uh, a, a had to see me right, had to see me right away, and then she canceled. <laughs> so I moved my whole schedule around since she didn't show. And then my other patient, who was scheduled to follow uh, ended up rescheduling uh, for next week. So I'm in my office with a lull. So now that I've caught up on emails, I did my medical student stuff. So yes, I am doing this remote again. Sorry, guys. But that's why you all are there. That's why you help with the audio. Oh, and in speaking about doing things on the move, several months ago, uh, one of my MAs uh, gave me this little sticker. Apparently, you can online, you can make a sticker for anything. So the sticker says, have portable podcast mic will travel. Is that perfect or what? You know, in several episodes, I always say, oh, that'd be a good bumper sticker or some nonsense like that. Well, they made me one and it's in my office. Well, 
Having said all that, which is completely unrelated to our topic, let's get back to persistent genital arousal disorder. Because even the name is jacked, okay? Because it just sounds so sexual with that. Now, it's got sexual implications, I get that. But the the broader term, which is likely much more correct, uh, and one that's been recognized by the International Society of Sexual Medicine, the ISSM, is not PGAD. But it's GPD, that's genital pelvic dysesthesia, okay? Genital pelvic dysesthesia, like a paresthesia. This is real, guys. This is not in their head, okay? This is a real condition. And I'm telling you, this has only been since 2001. I'm going to give you the data and the history here in a minute. But just because, again, it wasn't reported doesn't mean it didn't exist before. But I'm super thankful. Literally, guys, since 2019 up to now in 2023, boom, if you take a look at the literature, do queries, do database searches. Some of these are our case reports. Some of these are our surveys on the patients and, and their healthcare experience uh, with dealing with this condition and really highlighting the, the amount of misdiagnoses that these patients can have. And I'll share one of those articles here coming up. But in 2019, the International Society of Sexual Medicine actually gave a a true criteria here uh, and a potential algorithm for workup. So I'm going to tell you what that is and I'm going to tell you what our particular patient had uh, because it had nothing to do with that fall off her scooter, all right? It's amazing what we found when we did a pelvic MRI. We're like, oh my gosh, this likely explains your condition. Now, I can't prove it, but we know that this thing that we found is likely uh, one of the etiologies. And she was so relieved because number one, we listened to her too. She felt heard and, and validated. And three, it wasn't in her head. I mean, this was a real issue. Now, let's set the stage before we get into some of the data that this is, of course, exclusive excluding, you know, some other pre-existing mental health issue. There's no persistent vaginal discharge. This is different than like having persistent bulbal vaginal candidiasis. This is different. We're talking about the kind of of pelvic uh, and labial and vaginal congestion that comes with sexual arousal, right? So, right, you get that lubrication, a little bit of that throbbing in the labia. That's normal because of the increased uh, blood flow with sexual arousal. But remember, these patients get it not linked to any kind of sexual stimuli. And it actually, it could be a, a in response to, to stress. Um, that's why historically this was thought to be oh, some, some kind of weird, you know, conversion reaction or somatization, but it's not. We now know that we threw these poor patients, uh, you know, along the side of the road, like nothing's wrong with you, but, but they actually do have something with this. And a lot of that misdiagnosis had to do with the, our, our lack of training. Let's call it what it is, because this is not something that's been around for a hundred years or, or, you know, 200 years has been written about. It likely existed back then, but it wasn't in the literature really until it was given a name and identified as a specific condition in 2001. And we're going to discuss that study in a minute. But I do want to uh, highlight a a publication that came out of, of Sexual Medicine. That's an online journal. And that came out in 2021 about uh, patients' experiences with, with medicine, with healthcare when dealing with this, okay? So again, this was published in 2021, and the title is Healthcare Experiences of Individuals with Persistent Genital Arousal Disorder or Genital Pelvic Dysesthesia, all right? 
So this followed an N of 113 individuals. So not a huge number. Remember, this isn't super common. I'll give you a percent in the general population. That's the assumption because a lot of this goes underreported, as we said multiple times. But this took 113 individuals who had, you know, criteria fulfilling PGAD or GPD uh, and, and asked about how they got their final diagnosis. So listen to this of these uh, 113 patients. Over a third, about 39.8%, waited at least six months before seeking care for their condition because they thought it was them. They thought it was something in their head or something was, uh, they were just misreading some normal signs, but six months or more. That's significant. The other surprising thing is that when the individuals did seek care, 67% did receive the formal diagnosis of PGAD or GPD, that's pretty good, right? That's almost 70%, but 20% didn't receive any diagnosis or felt that their complaints were discarded. Now, thankfully, it wasn't 50%, but it was 20.4%. But more importantly, of those who were given the diagnosis, even less had a, had a true diagnostic or, or, or treatment plan given to them. And that's not necessarily the healthcare provider's fault, but the truth is there's just not a lot of data out there. A lot of this is, is empirical. Thankfully, since 2019, there has been new guidelines, as we mentioned, and I'll cover those in a minute, to try to give a diagnostic algorithm and, and a treatment plan for this. But before I say that, let's be very clear, there is no FDA-approved medication just for genital uh, arousal uh, disorder, persistent genital arousal disorder, or genital pelvic dysthesia. A lot of these are off-label. And as you would figure as things with all kinds of chronic nerve pain or chronic pelvic pains, it's the same medications that repeat, okay? TCAs, gabapenem, um, uh, neuroleptics at, uh, in, in some form or flavor uh, at low dose. Uh, and of course, if it's a physical condition, then surgical correction of the defect, which was the case in our patient, because uh, it was a physical abnormality, but, but surgery was risky. Now, I'll discuss what we found in this patient a little bit later. But all to say, in, in this study of 113 individuals who had criteria fulfilling persistent genital arousal disorder or genital pelvic dysthesia, they've recorded uh, their experience in that 2021 study. And it's an interesting read because it's, you know, we're good at everything else, right? Ah, oh, you got pain with sex, um, and it hurts with deep penetration, and you have cyclic or non-cyclic pain. That's likely endo. We get that. Or, oh my goodness, you've got a high-grade pap. I know what to do with that. But this weird thing of my labia is throbbing, and it feels wet, and it feels like it's almost on the verge of this weird orgasmic thing, but I'm not even in the mood for it. Uh, that's weird, right? But this is a true condition. And I'll give you etiologies in a minute, but as you can guess, it, it's really... Uh, uh, three main boxes, right? So CNS, something centrally is off in the firing. Two, peripheral nervous system, um, something is off in the innervation. Or three, it's end organ muscular, like hypertonicity uh, of the pelvic floor, which then in, in, in return triggers the nerves to fire. So it's either central uh, nervous system, peripheral nervous system, or end organ being a hypertonicity of the pelvic floor muscles that gives this weird kind of persistent genital arousal issue. 
Let's clear up one big myth here regarding persistent genital arousal disorder or genital pelvic dysesthesia. And that's that while women are by the vast majority the ones affected, this is not just a female condition. All right. So let's, let's get our mind around that, that this also affects males, uh, biological males as well. But it is no question, hands down, much more uh, common as a complaint in biological females. This condition, here's a diagnosis, okay? Uh, the definition, rather. We'll do the diagnosis in a minute. The definition is, quote, persistent, unwanted, and intrusive feelings of genital arousal that are not related to sexual desire. Now, here's another big catch. These symptoms can include lubrication, tingling, throbbing, swelling of the genitals, or feeling like they are physically on the edge of orgasm. Now, remember, orgasm is not the goal here. This is sometimes this is something that comes on by itself and at inappropriate times. So part of the definition of this is that it causes significant distress to the patient. And here's the catch. These can come and go, and it can last for minutes. And it's been reported, guys, to last for hours or even days at a time with episodes of waxing and waning. Crazy or what, all right? And we have to say it again. These patients are not nuts. You still got to do a full workup, though, make sure it's nothing, uh, uh, you know, that you can treat, nothing kind of weird vaginal discharge, not some kind of, of weird uh, dysreflexia going on. But there is, again, those three main boxes of etiologies, and we're going to walk through the potential diagnostic categories here in just a minute. But just some quick take-home things. This is not just for women, although women are majority the ones affected. And, and again, this causes significant uh, complications, uh, significant impact to their quality of life. Goldstein et al. has a really nice review on this condition published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine from 2021. Do you all see kind of the pattern here? We're going to talk about 2019 with the um, International Society of Sexual Medicine uh, when they came together at their conference and said, hey, this is legit. Here's some things that you can consider for the workup. And then from that time, um, really, remember when we talked about that survey that came out in 2021, this great review on the condition 2021. I found another uh, couple of case reports from 2022. You see, these are things that are out there. That's why we always tell our, our medical students and residents, look, if you got something novel or something that's new, put it out there because it's all you need is somebody else to read that and go, hey, that happened to me as well, or I've got a patient like that. And that's how contributing to, to the literature gains steam. You ever notice that things kind of bundle up in terms of a publication years because somebody sees it and goes, hey, we had something like that too. We can contribute and boom, something else comes out. And that's how things gain uh, awareness. But if you see something and you never put it to print, that's that's a disservice because you're robbing somebody else of a potential future diagnosis or future understanding. In this Goldstein publication from the Journal of Sexual Medicine in 2021, the, the authors go into the fact that this isn't just a physical or a bothersome or a weird thing, but this has real psychosocial uh, implications here and consequences. The impact of persistent genital arousal disorder or GPD uh, is real. There are studies that have shown that in those patients who finally get to that diagnosis, there's high rates of mental health issues that come from it, not pre-existing, but, but come from this not knowing if this is going to happen as a flare in the movies, in a business meeting, in the middle of class. So things like anxiety related to the symptoms, worry, emotional liability, and here are the two big ones, 
suicidal ideation, and even catastrophization. Both of those uh, have been associated with this condition as a consequence, as a sequelae of this. So it's real. So we have to listen to these patients because these other factors can be prevalent as much as 54% of the time. Half of them have some kind of emotional disturbance just resulting from these symptoms. Now, let me tell you what this patient, our patient uh, in our intro and who we're basing this episode on also told me. I mean, when this started happening to her, uh, she thought, you know what, maybe maybe it's just what I didn't think I was kind of in the mood. I didn't think I was kind of feeling it, but maybe my body's telling me something. And so she tried to, you know, just to have an orgasmic release so that this symptom could go away. And she's very open with it. She's like, I tried everything. I mean, I, and, and yeah, I was able to, to have orgasmic activity, but it, it didn't go away even with an orgasm. And that was what I thought was really strange. And then I got frightened. Wow. I mean, this almost seems like some kind of Hollywood script, right? Like a weird suspense slash horror movie. You're like, what is happening to your body? But this is real. And this is why, you know, getting misdiagnosed as, oh, you're just being hypersexual. I mean, it's understandable, but it's completely wrong. Uh, so that family friend, you know, saying, oh, you're fine. You're otherwise healthy. Look, you're 19. There's no other health issues. You know, you're a healthy 19-year-old. You're probably just thinking about sex or your body is, but you may not be. What does that even mean? Uh, but th- this is why there's so many weird things out there. And, and I'm telling you, you know, two main things that are not really touched on in, in OBGYN residency in general is menopause. That just came out in a, in a press release. Man, we, we surveyed residency education. There's kind of a gap in, medic- in menopause treatment and, and in uh, biochemistry and, and in hormone biology, really. Uh, and then the second thing is on sexual health. Yes, we get, you know, everyone knows, uh, you know, the terms, but when you talk about true sexual arousal disorders and sexual dysesthesias, uh, we really don't get a lot of training for that. So this is why it's important to keep up with CEUs and CMEs and, and just know what's out there so we don't take a patient's complaint for granted. There are two professional organizations who really try to address sexual dysfunction, especially in women's health. Uh, the first is the ISSWSH. You ever heard of that? Well, it's a real thing. We get ACOG, we get SMFM, we get um, ASRM, but there are other societies out there that are equally valid and, and have a, uh, authoritative authoritative voice. What I, authoritative? English is hard sometimes. Authoritative voice. All right, ISSWSH. That is the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Yeah, it's a legit thing. So that's one organization. And the other we've already mentioned, which is the um, International Society for Sexual Medicine. Okay, so ISSM, International Society of Sexual Medicine, and then ISSWSH, which is the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Martin Kafta, back in 2010, actually wrote on hypersexual disorder as a separate category for the DSM. This was in Archives of Sexual Behavior. We have to distinguish these two similar, at least they sound similar, but very different conditions, right? Because they have different pathophysiologies. Individuals with persistent genital arousal disorder do report being frequently misdiagnosed as simply being hypersexual. But these two conditions are very different. 
Persistent genital arousal disorder is characterized by these persistent genital arousal sensations in the absence of desire. But in contrast, hypersexuality is characterized by recurrent and intensive sexual fantasies, sexual urges, and behavior that's associated with personal distress. Individuals who experience hypersexuality also may engage in sexual fantasies, urges, or behaviors in response to that stress or negative mood, but they may experience unsuccessful effects to reduce those fantasies, urges, or behaviors, and they may disregard the risk of harm associated with those behaviors. So here's the big, the big difference here, all right? Individuals with hypersexuality do not experience unwanted, persistent genital arousal sensation. They may have those feelings, but they are always accompanied by hyperarousal or hyperdesire. And those are the two things that are lacking in patients who have PGAD. Now, before we get into the 2019 proposed diagnostic algorithm and the proposed treatments for this, which we've kind of touched on already, right? They're all off-label forms of chronic pain modulation like gabapenem, Neurontin, uh, the TCAs, um, and some form of neuroleptics. We discussed that already, okay? But, but I do want to say something that's super important here as well, because even though patients with this don't have orgasm as their end goal, right? They didn't even want to feel this sensation. They just kind of get this fullness. But in some patients, actually about a third of them also have this experience of spontaneous orgasmic activity. And it makes sense, right? Think about it. The, the vulva is already engaged. It's super sensitive. There's clitoral hood swelling and edema. And there's this hyper firing uh, of the nervous impulses. So think about it. They're sitting in class. Boom. Out of nowhere, they get this congestion. They get this the, the lubrication. And because the clitoral hood is also involved, right? So the clitoral hood gets swollen. The clitoral body has is become super sensitive. The clitoral head, and because those nerve fibers are are just firing already, then a third of individuals—that's thirty-three percent—a third of the individuals affected with PGAD also report spontaneous orgasm. In other words, an orgasm that occurs in the absence of sexual activity or contact. And remember, outside of desire. So how distressing is that? So I know it sounds super weird. You're like, you're kidding. This is a real thing. It is absolutely a real thing. So these spontaneous non-desire orgasmic activity are obviously uncomfortable. They're distracting. They're disturbing. So that's why you see why up to 50% of these patients have some uh, some development of, of a mental health condition, mainly anxiety, worry, or, or a catastrophization because they never know when this is going to happen. So just to be clear, it, it's a third of these patients who are female uh, will experience spontaneous orgasm. This is a big deal. This whole condition was first brought to light and really given a name in a publication from the Journal of Sexual Marital Therapy back in 2001, with the authors being Lieblum and Nathan. And in this 2001 publication, they highlighted uh, a mini case series of five patients all with this, this same symptomatology. And, and that's where we get this, this definition of, quote, persistent sexual arousal syndrome, end quote, that had nothing to do with sexual fantasies or sexual desire. But from 2001 to now, we've really expanded this. And now we know so much more. Take, for example, what started out as basically a mini case series 
uh, what, 22 years ago, and now fast forward to 2019 with the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health at their meeting, they now introduce at this time a, a novel management algorithm to better diagnose uh, and recognize this condition. And so this publication from 2019 from the ISSWSH actually kind of put things into boxes. And we kind of mentioned this before. But in general, remember, it's either a central nervous system defect, a peripheral nervous system issue, or an end organ result with hypertonicity of the pelvic floor muscles. In general, the 2019 consensus statement said that, look, there's something going on here, either from a central origin or peripheral or at the end organ uh, that's causing an issue here. So it's either something going on mechanically with a nerve conduction, something that potentially could be a nerve root issue like a pathological cyst formation. It could be something that's off in the neurotransmitter chain, uh, or it could be something that's simply a hypertonicity of the pelvic floor. Uh, and, and even physical things like a thoracic or lumbar sacral uh, cervical stenosis that puts pressure on the nerve roots it has also been proposed to be a causative factor here. Now, let me just spill the beans right now because I just mentioned what we actually found in our patients. So we sent our, we did a full exam, didn't find any focal lesions, the, the skin was normal, there was no weird discharge, she had no uh, dysreflexia. And so we said, look, I don't know what's going on here. Pelvic sauna was normal. Uh, let's just go ahead and get a pelvic MRI, see what's going on. And, and lo and behold, we found some, some lower uh, lumbar sacral, a little bit of, of, of canal uh, stenosis. Now, no tingling in the feet, nothing else. Was that absolutely the cause of this patient's condition? I, can, I can't say that. However, we did find a lesion in her uh, spinal cord that has been published as a potential etiology. And I can't tell you, I mean, I can't even describe to you how she felt when we told her something like, oh, well, the good news is um, we, we found something. The bad news is I don't know if it's necessarily fixable uh, or if that's really what's causing it uh, or not. But the literature says that it could. And she was so happy just to hear that there was, that there was not all in her head. No, we did not send her for neurosurgery. Uh, we did that as an informal consult. They're like, we're just going to give her you know, gabapentum and, and retrain those nerves and do some pelvic floor exercises, which is exactly what we did. And, and she got better. Now, not to say that gabapentum is good for everybody, but in this case, because we did find that, that lumbar sacral uh, uh, narrowing, uh, that along with pelvic floor rehab, it did seem to help. All right, family, here's a clinical pearl regarding the diagnostic algorithm. There is not one diagnostic radiological image or test or one physical exam finding that is the without doubt criterion, right? The synquinon. We don't have that. It's very clinical, all right? I'm going to get to the five parts of the diagnosis here in a minute, but it's very similar to the CDC's PID criteria. So remember that the diagnosis of PID is based only on clinical factors uh, and really it's physical exam. Uh, and it's one of three issues. It's either, as minimal criteria, uterine tenderness or cervical motion tenderness or adnexal tenderness. You don't need two or you don't need, definitely don't need all three. It's any one of those. So super high sensitivity, but poor specificity. That's where the supportive clinical findings like fever, uh, abnormal vaginal discharge, elevated white blood cell count, uh, positive GC or chlamydia, those increase the specificity. But those tests are not required for the diagnosis. It's one or more of the three minimal criteria for PID. 
And it's very similar to this for persistent general arousal disorder, all right? Tests that you get based on physical exam or radiological images are all supportive uh, and help increase the specificity of the diagnosis, but it's all based on clinical factors, clinical history here. According to the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, there are five components for the clinical diagnosis just based on history of PGAD. The first, and we've talked about all these already, the first is the physical feeling of of genital arousal that's not linked to the psychological component of desire, all right? So you get increased genital blood flow, tingling, uh, throbbing in the genital area without the the emotional or psychological connectedness of, of being turned on, all right? So you don't have desire, but, but your body down there is feeling it. Second is the feeling of these symptoms that may have a non-sexual trigger, no trigger at all, or even a sexual trigger. In other words, it can come without regard to sexual scenario, situation, uh, or, or not. So it's unrelated to the situational awareness of what's going on, Okay. Third is experiencing arousal symptoms in the genital area that can last minutes up to hours. You see, now that's different than arousal in the genital area uh, from sex because, hey, you get a little turned on, the little hanky-panky is going on, they get a little throbby, little edema to the, to the labia, that normal congestion, but then after the act, it goes away. But again, this third criteria is that it does not go away. The fourth symptom, like we talked about with this patient, is that, oddly enough, having an orgasm, either single or multiple, and again, nothing wrong with that. If, if, that's, if that's a way to relieve the sexual tension, that's fine. But because it's not linked to sexual tension, here's a clinical pearl. Having multiple or single orgasms do not relieve symptoms. And we mentioned that in our patient. She was very frustrated. She's like, well, great. Hey, I'm just going to get get busy real quick. She went into her room, into her dorm area by herself, uh, had uh, masturbation activity, uh, had an orgasm, but she's like, okay, it still kind of feels weird down there. So it doesn't go away. And then the fifth thing is, as we mentioned before, it has to have a disturbance of quality of life. Now people, so those are the five different components. Now the question is, how many of those do you need? I mean, is it one? Is it two? Is it three or more? And that's what's what there's a lot of, of, of debate on. But most people say if you have three of those five criteria, then your, your sensitivity is, is pretty high. Obviously, if you have more of the, if you have all five, your specificity is high as well. But, but at least three of those can point you into the direction of this condition, excluding, of course, uh, some other etiology, all right? Now, it doesn't mean that once you have your clinical diagnosis that you don't keep looking, just like with PID, you, if you have the, one of the three minimal criteria, you can say, I think you got PID, but I'm still going to do culture, still going to get a CBC, still going to get a pelvic ultrasound. And the same applies here. Say, look, just by your history, just talking to you, haven't even examined you yet. I think this is what's going on. But now I need to do a physical exam, rule out some other issues. I'm going to recommend a, a pelvic ultrasound just to make sure nothing else is being missed because that's just kind of what we do. And getting a pelvic MRI specifically to look, to look uh, at, at the neuronal sheaths uh, and at the, the uh, spinal column to make sure there's no abnormal herniation of discs or stenosis. So even though you can meet the clinical criteria for the diagnosis, you still got to look for a possible etiology. And 
even if your etiology workup, even if your your tests are negative, because you can't really test for the the hyper response of the nervous system, the the, the catecholamine firing, the the neurotransmitter uh, uh, you know response, you can't really measure that. Then it defaults back again just to that clinical diagnosis. Not finding things on a radiological test is fantastic. That's reassuring, but it does not rule out that this condition is occurring just based on clinical factors alone. So is this interesting or what? I mean, you do have to take a full exam. You got to take a full history, look for other weird uh, neurological signs or symptoms. But but I love what the review from February 2023 in Women's Health Reports, uh, I, I love the way that they go through their, their diagnostic algorithm, basically highlighting the 2019 consensus statement. And I'll put the link to that in our references, but it basically is what, what we've covered already. And regarding treatment, as we get ready to wrap this, up, they have a great, uh, just a quick little paragraph uh, about where we are with this. And they remind us, look, there is not one FDA-approved treatment for this or all off-label, but it's the same medications that you would think would help with all kinds of chronic pelvic pain or neuropathies. As the authors from that 2023 review state, quote, treatment for PGAD continues to be poorly understood and has, up to this point, been largely based on case reports and expert opinion. There are currently no medications that are approved for the treatment of PGAD, so treatment is carried out with off-label medications. Current medications and modalities that have been used with varying success include gabapenem, pregabalin, antidepressants, anticonvulsants, benzodiazepines, electroconvulsive therapy, lumbar disc disease surgery, and dose adjustments of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. These authors also state, as others have as well, that there's a huge benefit here also to cognitive behavioral therapy, biofeedback, meditation to relax those pelvic muscles that aren't necessarily the cause of it. They're likely the consequence of, of these abnormal nerve firing. But if you can relax some of that tension, then you can relax some of the nerve firing as well. Other things that have been studied include pudental nerve blocks or topical anesthetics uh, or even a, a Lupron, but those are definitely not considered first line. And as we end this podcast, the patient was very relieved to get some information, be validated, uh, get put on this medication. And even though we just kind of started uh, on this path, uh, states that already just having that validation and going through uh, biofeedback uh, and getting some meditation and taking the medication, which we've had to escalate. And it's been very, very short term. Right? We haven't been here. We haven't been following her for months. I mean, we just saw her not long ago. Um, we, we're just starting to have some kind of relief uh, from, this, from these symptoms. So all to say, she was very thankful that finally somebody had... Uh, one, heard of this condition, and second, not uh, said that she was just nuts or hypersexual. So that's why we thought uh, it would be super important to do this episode. All right, podcast family, I think my patient is now here, so I've got to leave, but I hope you found this interesting and helpful. And as always, we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.